Hey, it's your host, Shannon Ballard. Just a reminder for you that if you enjoy Southern Mysteries, you can hear more when you become a Patreon member. Patrons hear bonus content called Southern Mysteries Shorts each month. Head to patreon.com slash southern mysteries to join today. On the afternoon of June 28, 1959, a torso was discovered near an abandoned house near Atala, Alabama. The following day, another torso was found about 11 miles away in Whitney Junction. Over the next few days, there would be reports of body parts scattered across three counties. Residents in the region were so terrified a monster could be on the loose, some locked their doors for the first time in their lives. Authorities couldn't identify the murder victims, and with no ID, there would be no leads in the case for weeks. The remains were called Mr. X and Mr. Y until an artist created sketches from what remained of the victims' faces and the drawings were printed in Alabama newspapers. A tip led investigators to a farm where they met the woman behind one of the grisliest crimes in Alabama history. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the mystery of the Alabama Torso Murders. Summers in Alabama can be unforgiving, but if you're willing to endure the heat and humidity and you love good eats, you're rewarded with the crops that are in season from okra, sweet corn, and squash, to peaches, watermelons, blackberries, and strawberries. It was berries Mr. O.T. Holiday was picking on a Sunday afternoon in June 1959. It was 95 degrees as he picked those blackberries in Northeast Alabama's Etowah County. He was unaware that as he moved further down a dirt road off Highway 11, he was moving closer to a gruesome discovery. Mr. Holliday was near an abandoned home when he saw something he said he could never forget, the torso of a man whose limbs had been removed. The next day, Mrs. Jack Partlow was checking on an empty home she owned in St. Clair County's Whitney Junction when she discovered a bloody and limbless body on the front porch. Now, both of these victims have been shot in the face and the second torso was found about 11 miles from the first. Residents in the area were horrified by the discovery that police believed could be gangland murders. The abandoned house where Mr. Holliday found the first torso was well known in the area because it had once been the headquarters of a bootlegging and gambling operation. One reporter theorized these victims, two men, were caught up in an underworld battle 
between what was known as the Alabama White Whiskey Ring and the Tennessee Red Whiskey Ring. In the days following the discovery of the torsos, people began to find body parts across three counties. Veteran state investigators Ben Allen and A.F. Mason would head up the investigation with help from officers in Etowah, St. Clair, and Calhoun counties. The greatest obstacle in their investigation was identification of the bodies. The coroner tried to piece the remains back together, but a few body parts were missing. The only pieces of physical evidence investigators had to work with were fragments of underwear left on one victim and fragments of a bloody shirt left on the other. They were able to track the brand of underwear, but it was a popular brand sold across the Southeast, which made it impossible to trace the owner. By July 1st, the remains of the men who had been labeled at the morgue as Mr. X and Mr. Y were buried in Alabama City Cemetery. With fear growing that a madman could be on the loose, investigators brought in Charles Brooks, an artist with the Birmingham News. They exhumed the remains of the victims and took photographs that Brooks viewed in order to sketch their faces. This was a daunting task because in addition to the gunshot wounds, it appeared someone had taken an ax to the faces of both victims. But Brooks was a talented artist who did his best to create a likeness that could help identify the men. After the sketches were printed in Alabama newspapers, a crew leader at Ace Construction Company called police to inform them the drawings kind of looked like two men who hadn't shown up to work in over two weeks. The missing men were 55-year-old Lee Harper and his 48-year-old brother Emmett. Lee worked as a welder with Ace Construction, and Emmett operated heavy equipment for the company. Both brothers were World War II veterans who were part of a crew building a new road in Calhoun County. The Harper brothers also had a record. Both had been arrested and jailed in the past five years for driving while intoxicated. The public didn't know that police thought they had the name of one of the victims because the toxicologist examining the torso of Mr. Y found a tiny bit of stenciled cloth embedded in his body. A couple of letters in the stencil were obscured, but there were enough letters to lead police to believe Mr. Y's name could be Lee Harper. When investigators heard that name, they immediately believed they had a solid lead. The Harper brothers lived in a one-room homemade aluminum trailer behind the main house on Martin Hyatt's farm in Rabbit Town, a community in Northeast Alabama's Calhoun County. Deputies from the county were dispatched to the Harper farm and would later note the farm and the people they met there had an air of primitiveness and backwardness. When investigators pulled into the driveway of the farm early in the morning on July 16, 1959, 
They noticed the farm had very little grass, was just hard clay and four huge trees. The main house was unpainted with a red brick chimney and a long porch. On the porch, they met 71-year-old Martin Hyatt, who was sitting in a swing, and his 30-year-old daughter, Viola, who was sitting in a rocking chair. When asked if they knew where the Harper brothers were, Martin explained the old boys had gone to South Alabama to visit family. Police knew that was an outright lie. When they heard the name Lee Harper, they had called family members to ask if they knew their whereabouts and had been told the brothers hadn't visited since Christmas. Within hours, 30 investigators were at the Hyatt farm searching the Harper brothers' trailer, which they described as a mess. Viola Hyatt kept asking what they were looking for. And when she was again asked if she knew where these men were, she said they had left town. Investigators pushed back, noting the cars the brothers owned were on the property, and it didn't look like they had taken anything when they left town. In fact, their keys were on a counter in the trailer. Viola didn't respond and just walked away. During the search of the property, authorities found the front door of the men's trailer had been blasted open by what appeared to be a shotgun. There were bloodstains all around the trailer. A bloodied axe was recovered under recently disturbed dirt. And a hat, along with blood and hair, were found in the trunk of the Harper's 1957 Ford Galaxy. Assuming the family may have worked together to kill the Harpers, authorities arrested Martin Hyatt, his daughter Viola, and his wife, Jessie. When they learned Viola was said to have dated Lee Harper at some point, they pushed her, questioned her for more than six hours. Investigators described talking to her as frustrating. At one point, Viola said she was scared because she saw her neighbor, Dewey Carroll, kill the Harper brothers. When police arrested Dewey and brought him into the police station, Viola seemed concerned about him. Detectives questioned her again, asked if she had anything to do with the murders or any information that could help. It was at that point, Viola broke down, told them to let Dewey go. She then confessed to the murders of Lee and Emmett Harper. 30-year-old Viola Hyatt would be described in police notes and in local papers as a sturdy and obese woman with long black hair and blue eyes. She was consistently referred to as a rather angry woman. Viola was born in Rabbit Town on February 3rd, 1929, the only child of Martin and Virgie Hyatt. Virgie was said to have been a rather distant mother and was not close to her child. Even told Viola she wished she had never been born, threatened to throw her in with the hogs and let them take care of her 
when Viola was five years old, her mother threatened to let the hogs eat her. And she told her mom she wished she would die. Months later, Virgie Hyatt did die. Within a year, Martin Hyatt met and married Jesse Wheeler. And from the beginning, Viola hated Jesse. They were constantly at odds. Viola and her father were particularly close. And as the years passed, any time stepdaughter and stepmother would fight, Martin took Viola's side, including when Viola dropped out of school in the ninth grade because a teacher annoyed her. Jesse disapproved of Viola's decision, and there were arguments over it that left Jesse telling friends sometimes she genuinely feared Viola because of the girl's temper and her strange ways. That fear increased as Viola got older, worked the farm, and grew to be a rather strong and intimidating farmhand. The Hyatts were isolated on that farm. After leaving school, Viola rarely socialized with other children, and her stepmother could see she was angry. But Martin Hyatt seemed totally detached from the reality of how angry his daughter was and how miserable his wife had become. Martin was more concerned about the farm and how helpful Viola was. She was always right by her dad's side in the fields. He had taught her to shoot when she was seven years old. But Martin would later admit, as the years passed, he often saw Viola shoot robins out of trees and shoot possums in their yard just because she said she liked to see things die. And there were other signs that Viola was disturbed. Some of her cousins mentioned playing with bullfrogs on the farm and Viola stabbing the frogs to watch them die. And there were the hogs, one of the family's main sources of income. Viola hated them, which was no surprise, considering what her mother had told her as a child. Viola's hatred of those animals ran so deep that at 13 years old, she asked her father when he planned to butcher the hogs because she was anxious to be done with them. Told him she wanted to watch it happen. Other things were just off in the Hyatt house. Martin seemed a little too attached to his daughter. And at the time of her arrest for the murder of the Harper brothers, 30-year-old Viola was sleeping in her father's room. When police asked about that arrangement, Martin said Viola just liked taking care of people. That willingness to help others was part of the reason Martin Hyatt said he let the Harper brothers move into that trailer on his farm. Lee Harper had rented a room from the Hyatts in the past and had allegedly been involved with Viola, but the nature of their relationship was never clear. Martin and Jesse Hyatt said they could never get an answer from Viola as to what had gone on with Lee. Martin explained to investigators that he needed some extra income. When Emmett Harper came to him in 1956 
and proposed he and his brother move into a trailer behind the Hyatt house, he agreed. But it's believed Martin Hyatt made a deal with the men to get them to pay a little more rent. A deal that included Viola, cooking, cleaning, and running errands for the Harper brothers. Another theory is that Martin's meaning of caring for someone meant his daughter would be available for sex with the Harpers. Whatever the arrangement, we don't know if Martin ever discussed this with Viola or if the deal was made against her will. All we know is the Harper brothers moved in and Viola's workload doubled, helping care for her father and the farm by day and caring for two men at night. Viola was involved with Lee Harper in 1959, and she was sexually involved with the brothers. We know this because when Viola confessed what she had done, she wrote a 10-page letter of confession. In her confession, she told police she had been intimate with both of these men. But one night, everything went wrong and they crossed a line. In her confession, she told police Lee Harper held a knife to her throat and forced her into a sex act she had refused, and he let Emmett watch. She explained in her confession the abuse was one of the reasons she snapped. The other was the abuse of her father by the Harper brothers. She claimed the men would get drunk and would hit her father, which may have proved to be her breaking point. Investigator Ben Allen would later testify at Viola's trial that she told him she shot the Harpers after they fought in the trailer. She said she couldn't take their abuse anymore, and she had her reasons to kill them. Then she claimed her story of abuse was not true but agreed to reveal to police the details of the murder of the Harper brothers. Viola explained that a little after midnight on Sunday, June 28, 1929, she got her dad's 12-gauge shotgun from the living room, walked out to the Harper brothers' trailer, and knocked on the door. Lee Harper was hungover and angry when he opened the door, and then saw Viola holding that shotgun. He quickly closed the door of the trailer, but it didn't protect him from what Viola had planned to do that night. She shot into the door, reached in to pull it open, and as Lee Harper backed away, she shot him in the face. Emmett, who was moving towards his brother to see what this commotion was, was also shot in the face. What followed were deliberate yet unsuccessful actions to try to cover up her crime. Viola walked back into the Hyatt house to return her dad's shotgun, then walked out to the Harper brothers' trailer to get the keys to one of their cars. She moved the car close to the trailer door and tried to drag Emmett's lifeless body to the back of the car. She ran into trouble when she realized she couldn't lift his dead weight into the trunk. Then she thought of the hogs 
She got a rusty, double-edged axe and a wheelbarrow from the barn and returned to the trailer where she butchered Emmett's and Lee's remains. She then loaded their torsos into the wheelbarrow and dumped them in the trunk, along with their limbs, and as she told police, other little bits of the men. Viola started the car and headed out on a gruesome road trip across what was known as the Whiskey Trail because it had been a favorite route for bootleggers. She disposed of the torsos, limbs, and the rest of the Harper brothers' remains on her drive across three counties. She returned home, cleaned up some of the bloody mess she had made in the trailer, then freshened up and went to church with her dad, as she did every Sunday morning. Late that afternoon, Viola went back to the trailer to finish cleaning up the murder scene. She then phoned Ace Construction to let them know the brothers wouldn't be into work for a week or so. That call was one of her biggest mistakes because it led police to the Hyatt Farm. After Viola confessed to the murders, she told investigators she acted alone. Clarified, she had randomly mentioned her neighbor Dewey, who was in no way involved in the crime. And she insisted her father and stepmother did not know what she had done. In fact, Martin and Jesse Hyatt told police the night the men were said to have been murdered on their farm, they must have been in a deep sleep because they didn't hear anything. With no evidence to the contrary, Martin and Jesse Hyatt were released. Once Viola knew her father was free, she agreed to go back to the farm to recreate the murder scene for investigators. She also agreed to ride along with police and show them where she had disposed of the rest of Lee and Emmett Harper's remains. Viola had confessed to these grisly murders, and the case became one of the most sensational in Alabama history. The press covered every detail, and the Birmingham News published photos of Viola with investigators on the Hyatt Farm as they walked through the details of the Harper's demise. For her court-appointed attorney, Robert Norred, the biggest question was how do you mount a defense for someone who just confessed to this heinous crime? Viola would talk to him about the murders, the actual act of how she killed the Harper brothers, but refused to offer any explanation as to motive. She insisted the abuse mentioned in her confession wasn't the truth of the story, and kept quiet when Norad said he had to have something to work with to save her. If it was abuse that drove her to murder, he could work with that, maybe even convince the district attorney that these were justifiable homicides. But Viola refused to talk. Norad worried that Viola wasn't of sound mind, could not fully understand the weight of her confession. He also believed there was no way she could have done this on her own. 
NORAD asked the court to transfer Viola to Bryce Mental Hospital in Tuscaloosa for a mental evaluation. The court agreed Viola seemed potentially separated from the reality of her confession. She was sent to Bryce for five months, at which time she was transferred back to Calhoun County Jail and certified as presently sane with a belief that she was sane at the time she committed the murders. Her attorney hoped Viola would talk after that time at Bryce, perhaps give him more to work with as he tried to mount a defense to save her life. Norad pressed Viola to tell him the truth. He asked if the Harper brothers or even her father had abused her or forced themselves on her. Viola's only reply was the Harpers had done her wrong and she had reasons for killing them. At that point, Norad felt he had no choice but to get Viola to see a psychiatrist who may have declared her insane. But Viola refused to meet with anyone but her father and a pastor. Viola Hyatt was indicted and charged with first-degree murder. Under Alabama law, she would face the electric chair if tried and convicted. Defense attorney Norad convinced Viola to enter a plea of innocence by reason of insanity. This, despite psychiatrist at Bryce ruling Viola was sane. Norad felt arguing her sanity would be his only chance to save her life. Viola's trial started and ended in Anniston on March 14, 1960. She was to stand trial for Lee Harper's murder first, and a jury was impaneled to hear the case. After a one-hour recess, the judge returned to the courtroom to announce a deal had been reached between the state and defense. In exchange for a guilty plea for both murders, the prosecution spared Viola's life and guaranteed a sentence of life in prison. Norad said he laid out the deal for Viola and told her it was her choice. She agreed to the deal under one condition, that she not be forced to talk about the details of the crime in open court. Now, the deal meant under state law, Viola would be eligible for parole in 10 years. She was transported to the Julia Tutwiler Prison for Women in Wetumpka, where she became a popular inmate. She was liked by everyone, her fellow inmates, the guards, even the prison warden. She was a model inmate who was allowed to leave prison to attend her father's funeral. When a three-man pardons and parole board interviewed Viola Hyatt on April 14, 1970, they evaluated her response to the review and her record as an inmate. Following a unanimous vote, the exceptionally good inmate was paroled. Two days before Viola was to be released, her stepmother, Jessie, who was still terrified of Viola and what she knew she was capable of, well, Jessie died of a massive heart attack. And Jessie's death meant Viola could return home to the Hyatt Farm in Calhoun County. 
which she did, but it seems it was too hard for her to be there without her father. She sold the place soon after she was released and moved to a little trailer park in nearby Jacksonville. Now this woman, known to be the Alabama Torso Slayer, lived a quiet life in her mobile home park called Tuckaway Village, where she found unexpected forgiveness and acceptance. Hard to believe that someone who could murder and dismember two men would become a trusted neighbor and earn a new nickname, the Mayor of Tuckaway Village. Everyone in the neighborhood knew Viola's story, but they would reveal to reporters after her death that they liked her. They called her mayor because she spent most days on neighborhood watch. She would sit on her front porch reading her Bible, and when she saw the kids of working single parents come home from school, she'd make note of it, then call their moms and dads at work to let them know the kids had made it home safely. And she always offered to help people out. In this community, she was known as God-fearing and likable. But when 71-year-old Viola Hyatt died on June 12, 2000, there was no obituary in the local paper and no funeral notice. Her friends in Tuckaway Village figured It was best her funeral not be mentioned in the paper for the sake of everyone involved. After all, her neighbors may have cared that the mayor of Tuckaway Village had died, but to everyone else in Alabama, Viola Hyatt was the torso slayer. The killer, who was never willing to tell the whole truth of what happened the night she murdered Emmett and Lee Harper which has left many folks believing she was protecting her father. For years after the murders, folks in Northeast Alabama swore Viola didn't act alone. Some investigators even openly questioned this. There's a theory that Martin Hyatt may have murdered the Harper brothers when he learned they hurt his daughter and Viola helped with the dismemberment and disposal of their bodies. That she loved her father so much, she was willing to confess to everything, even face the electric chair, to save him. But that's all we're left with. Theories. Because the two Viola Hyatts, the mayor of Tuckaway Village, and the Alabama Torso Slayer, took her secrets to the grave. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. Should be noted, investigators later said the key to solving the murder of the Harper brothers were the sketches Charles Brooks created. And when you see his sketches and then see images of the brothers, you do see the talent of Charles Brooks considering how little he had to work with. You can view those sketches along with photos from this episode and sources in the show notes at southernmysteries.com. This is an independent podcast, and I do rely on support to keep telling the stories you hear 
on Southern Mysteries. I'm so thankful for my patrons on Patreon. Thanks to Shelly from French Camp, Mississippi, and Natalie from Wyandotte, Michigan, who are our newest members supporting the show on Patreon. When you join, you can hear monthly bonus content called Southern Mystery Shorts at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. And there are other ways you can support the show that won't cost you a dime. You can share this episode and others you like on your socials and leave a review where you're listening. People read reviews and it does help encourage other folks to check out the show. And remember to follow Southern Mysteries where you're listening now so you never miss a new episode. Thanks so much for listening.